morning. I was talking to Chad this morning. He said uh, we were doing a new song and that I would like it. He was right. Woo. Good stuff. Freedom. Freedom in Christ and freedom purchased by Christ for us. The problem is that we oftentimes want to, for whatever reason, we want to go back into slavery. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back into slavery. Christ has set us free. And we're not battling anymore for our freedom. It's a free gift by Christ. But we have to battle to stay free. Because our propensity is to go back into slavery. As we'll see today in Galatians. Today we're going to have a confrontation. Paul's going to talk about a confrontation. And confrontation isn't easy. But this confrontation had to happen to continue the freedom that we have in Christ. Confrontations cause pain and broken relationships. But they're often necessary. And by God's grace, they can be very beneficial. I remember having to confront one of the members of the church in Thailand... He was the, actually the first male college student that came to Christ through our ministry. But shortly after he came to, came to know the Lord, we found out that he had also taken the vows as a Buddhist priest. Now, this is very normal in Thailand. It's not anybody can, any, any male can become a, a Buddhist priest. Many young men become a priest for a, for a short time. It's, it's not a lifetime commitment. It, It's seen as a way to make merit, to do good works for your mother. Because women can't become priests. So sons often become priests in order to pay back, to earn merit for their mom. For what she's done for them. There's often times, uh, often great family pressure put upon a son to take the vows of that Buddhist priest. So when we heard that he, what he had done, I and my missionary colleague had to, had to confront this young man, this young believer. We had to make it clear that he couldn't call himself a Christian and continue to practice Buddhism, especially as, it, as it's done in Thailand, especially as a, as a priest. And fortunately, he understood. It was just a, a matter of, of not getting it yet, of his newness to Christ. And he quit the priesthood. Right after that. He also became more involved in the church and he grew in his faith. Now that was, that was a good confrontation. Not all confrontations have, have gone this well. I remember one confrontation I had with a member at Bridges. It was hard. And it ended in that person leaving the church. Confrontation is difficult. But it's a necessary part of church life. And in our text for today we're going to see a necessary confrontation between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, the two, I mean, these are heavyweight dudes, a confrontation that will have direct impact on the gospel. Today we finish chapter 2 of Galatians, if you've been with us. Remember that Paul is, what Paul is doing in chapters 1 and 2, he's defending both his apostleship, his authority as an apostle, and his gospel. Remember, false teachers had come to Galatia, They had opposed Paul's gospel by discrediting his authority. No, he's not a true apostle. He's just a a second-hand apostle. So in chapter 1, he makes it clear that his apostleship and his gospel were not from men, but from God. He's not dependent on Peter and the other apostles in Jerusalem. 
Then in chapter 2, the first half, verses 1 through 10, Paul shows that even though he's independent from the other apostles, he received his apostleship directly from the Lord. They, though, approved of his apostleship. They, the apostles in Jerusalem, approved of his gospel. Their unity among the apostles in the gospel of grace alone through faith alone. The apostles could now move forward on two major fronts, if you remember. Two major missions fronts. Paul and Barnabas would get the lion's share and go to the Gentiles. The other apostles would go to the Jews. Now we come to verses 11 through 21 today. Paul continues to defend his apostleship and his gospel. In verses 11 through 14, he gives an example really to prove his independence, to prove that he received his gospel and his apostleship directly from the Lord. He tells of a confrontation between himself and the apostle Peter. Then in verses 15 to 21, Paul follows through with the implications of this confrontation. And he concludes his defense of, his, of, of, his, of, of the gospel. If after this, if any Galatians still believe that Paul had guide, is guided by the, the Jerusalem apostles and not by God, he wants to use this last time here to put that notion to rest. Not only was Paul not guided by the other apostles, including their leader, Peter, he had become Peter's guide. He had to be Peter's guide. He had to fight for freedom in Peter's life and in the life of the church in Antioch, as we'll see. Paul must defend the truth of the gospel from Peter's hypocritical actions. We begin in verse 11. The verses will be up here, or there's a, a Bible in front of you. We're using the ESV version. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. You know, Paul didn't mind a little face-to-face confrontation. Not email confrontation. Not texting confrontation. Not even Facebook face-to-face confrontation, but actual face-to-face, here I am, confrontation. He says that Peter stood condemned. He was guilty of sin. And in the following verses, those which follow, Paul recounts what Peter's sin was and why he opposed him to his face. And as we'll see, the issue is, is the purity of the gospel, the freedom we have in the gospel. Paul continues to defend the true gospel. Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. He was eating with the Gentiles. Peter was enjoying his freedom, the freedom he had received from the Lord. We see this specific freedom, the freedom given to eat with the Gentiles given in Acts chapter 10. God had called Peter to go to the home of a Gentile, a Gentile named Cornelius, and preach the gospel. But one of the issues for a Jew going into another person's home, into a Gentile home, one of the issues anytime you go into a home is that of eating food. Usually you're offered food. But the Jews, they had many dietary regulations that the Gentiles didn't share. So to avoid breaking those dietary laws, they just didn't go into the homes of Gentiles. They sort of put a a hedge around it. Okay, we want to make sure we don't break this law, so we're not even going to go into a home of a Gentile. 
But in Acts chapter 10, along with the call to preach the gospel to Cornelius, God gave Peter a vision. We'll read in Acts 10, verses 11 through 13. And and Peter, he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. You know, this is a turning point for Peter. This is a turning point for the mission of the church. God says something to Peter. Peter, it's a new day. The Messiah has come. The sacrificial system, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament have done their work. They've prepared the way for the Messiah. Now let them go. So Peter goes to the house of Cornelius. He preaches the gospel and Gentiles are saved. They they receive the Holy Spirit. Peter saw in this that both Jews and Gentiles, he inferred from this that both Jews and Gentiles are set free from the law. Specifically, the dietary regulations. So when Peter ate with the Gentile brothers and sisters in Antioch, he was exercising, he was standing in the freedom that the gospel brings. He was honoring the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We no longer have to follow the law. Christ fulfilled the law. But then something happened. Verse 12 again. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles... But when they came, he, Peter, drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The circumcision party, or we've been calling them the Judaizers, living according to Jewish custom. These guys came to Antioch from James. We don't know how they were connected with James, or why they came, or even what they said. We're not given any of those details. But one thing is made clear, the thing that's emphasized here by Paul in verse 12, is that Peter feared this group of men. Why? Doesn't say, but but maybe they were capable of physical violence. We've, We've seen that. Or maybe Peter didn't think he could explain his freedom and would look foolish. What are you doing eating with Gentile? Well, you know, there was this vision and I I can't quite remember it. Or maybe he didn't want to offend these influential men. Maybe he thought he would, he would ruin his reputation in Jerusalem as a, as a Jew. We aren't told why he feared, but he did. And in a moment of weakness, he stopped follow, fellowshipping with his Gentile brothers and sisters. Instead of standing firm and defending the truth of the gospel, that these dietary regulations don't matter anymore, the truth that keeping the dietary laws isn't important, Peter gave in to fear. Now let's not be too harsh on him. He was afraid to defend the truth of the gospel. And we're often afraid to defend the gospel for for really similar reasons. We don't want to look foolish if we can't explain why we really believe the gospel. If we can't answer all the questions that are thrown at us. Or we don't want to offend people or, or ruin our reputation like Peter, we're oftentimes afraid to defend the gospel. We remain silent. But Paul says this in 2 Timothy 1.7, a verse I think that should give us hope. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You know, if we experience fear over the thought of 
defending the gospel, the thought of sharing our faith, the thought of reaching out, or if, really if we experience fear for any reason, anxiety over anything, our need is to experience the truth of the gospel again. The paradox is that we're afraid, we're afraid to defend the gospel because we're not experiencing the gospel. We need to remember it. We need to meditate on it. We need to let it sink in. It needs to be the main thing in our life. We need to stop and realize that the God, what the gospel means for you and I. That the God of the universe, in His grace, gave His Son to die for us. He gave His Son in order that we might enjoy an eternal relationship of peace with God. That we might be reconciled to God. If we believe the gospel, then we're children of God, adopted into his family. Paul writes in in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34, about the implications of this relationship we have, this relationship purchased by Christ. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the gospel. That for those who trust in him, he is for you. He's on your side. And if the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving creator of the universe is for you, he will be with you in all of your troubles. And he'll be with you when you stand up, when you defend the gospel that has made such a difference in our lives. And yes, and this is the most amazing thing of all, he'll be with you even when you fail. Like Peter we'll all have our our temporary lapses of faith, some more temporary than others. And in verse 14, Paul refers to this as being out of step with the truth of the gospel. We'll look at that more in a minute. But it's really a key statement there in this part of Galatians that, that, that Peter and others are out of step with the truth of the gospel. We all get out of step with the gospel. We allow fear to overtake us. But God does not abandon us. He's gracious to his wayward children. God disciplines those he loves. He sent Paul to confront Peter face to face that Peter might be brought back into step with the gospel. Who else could confront Peter? He's the leader of all these other guys. But he sends Paul, this independent authority, to come and confront Peter. Paul, willing to stand up. So fear is has knocked you out of step with the gospel, if you're, if you're behaving in a way that's not true to the gospel, God gives you his word this morning to remind you that you don't have to fear anything or anyone if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is for you. But when you do fall, when you do have lapses as Peter did, especially when you're a leader, there are consequences. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, along with Peter, so that even Barnabas, 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 who's Barnabas? 
Barnabas is Paul's traveling companion. Barnabas is the, the guy was, that was commissioned with Paul in Acts chapter 13 to go to the Gentiles. Paul's buddy, even Barnabas, was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas, we know Barnabas the encourager, but he's being led astray by the hypocrisy of, of Peter and others. Can you imagine, though, how the Gentile believers must have felt? Before this group of guys, the circumcision party, showed up, there had to be a, a great sense of unity in Antioch. The leaders of the church, the, Jew, the guys that had walked with Jesus, that talked with him, they're eating with us, we're, we're enjoying fellowship with them. With Peter, the guy that kind of walked on water, we're eating with him. This is exciting stuff. But now that's broken. Fellowship was cracked by fear and broken by hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy means to play a part, to act. Peter and the others knew that they were free to eat with the... They didn't like... These guys all of a sudden showed up and, oh, the light bulb went off. Oh, I'm not supposed to be eating with these people. They knew it was okay. Remember the vision? Peter had the vision. Kill and eat. Go. But they acted like they weren't allowed. They, They were going back into slavery in order to please this party of the circumcision. They sacrificed their principles, the things they knew to be true. Why? Because they feared offending some legalistic guys. They were willing to go along to get along. And unfortunately, we do the same thing so often. We sacrifice our principles. We sacrifice the gospel because we don't want to offend some people. Just be clear, the gospel will always offend some people. Now, I'm almost certain that most of us believe the principle that we're called, there's a principle in Scripture that we're called, once you're saved, you're then called, we've talked about this recently, you're you're saved for service, you're called to be an ambassador for Christ, to represent Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we're ambassadors of Christ. But how often do do we violate that principle that we know to be true? Because uh, we're afraid of offending. How often do we remain silent when we should speak out? When we should speak up for the truth of the gospel? We're not so different than, than these guys. But fortunately, the Apostle Paul was not willing to go along, to get along. In verse 14, but when I, Paul, saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul says that Peter and Barnabas and others are not in step with the truth of the gospel. They're afraid of the party of the circumcision. And fear is not in step with the gospel. They're being hypocrites, violating their own principles, and hypocrisy is not in step with the gospel. Do you see what this means though? For believers, for those who have already who've put their faith in Jesus Christ, even church leaders, even people who've been filled with the spirit and used by God, even apostles like Peter and and missionaries like Barnabas, there are actions that are in step with the gospel and there are actions that are out of step with the gospel. And this is all post-salvation. We're not talking about earning anything here. God has given them the free gift of salvation. And now 
their actions are out of step with that free gift they've received. Let me try to illustrate it this way. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and He gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit, a new beat begins to play in your head. I need a drummer here, because I can't do it. But a new beat. Something new is in you. Something new is in your head. Before Christ, there was only the beat of the world. Beats of fear and hypocrisy, of lust and hate and envy and selfishness. But now there's a new beat. And when you hear and believe the beat of the gospel, your, your step changes a little bit. Your step changes, hopefully, a lot. It gets in line with the truth of the gospel. There's a life in step with the gospel, and there's a life out of step with the gospel. As believers, we've been given this new beat. We can now walk in step or not. The beats of the world are still present. They're still in the background there, or sometimes they move to the foreground and are pounding on us, depending on the situation we choose to put ourselves in. The beats of the world are still there. The beats of the world are still present, and we can choose to follow them as well. That's what Peter and the others were doing. They were, they were not in step with the truth of the gospel. They were in step with fear. They were in step with hypocrisy. And they were also in step with one other major beat of the world. A beat that disguises itself in religious garb. And this, is, and this Paul said, would impact the Gentiles. And this is the beat of, of legalism. Paul says to Peter, the end of verse 14, If you, though a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, as a, as a leader in the church, as an apostle, by his behavior, not by his words, we're not told Peter then held a sign to be a Christian, you have to keep these dietary laws, but by his behavior, he was forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews. I mean, if Peter's doing it, it has to be the right thing. So when he stopped eating with the, his Gentile brothers and sisters because they didn't keep the dietary laws, the Gentiles would be forced to believe that to be a true Christian, you had to go back under those laws. And that's legalism. And that's not in step with the true beat of the gospel. Paul is defending the gospel by seeking to help Peter and others get back in step with the truth of the gospel. Now in verses 15 and 16, Paul expands on why Peter is out of step by, by forcing Gentiles to live like Jews. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. There's nothing you can do. There's no work good enough to be justified. In verse 15, it's a little interesting. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. The word sinners in, in verse 15, we are Jews, not Gentiles, is used in a limited sense, I'll explain. Paul doesn't mean that Jews aren't sinners, but Gentiles are. He's speaking specifically in the context here, in the context of the Jewish dietary laws. He means that he and Peter, as 
kosher Jews in the past, that is, were not guilty of violating the Jewish dietary laws. But Gentiles who don't keep the Jewish dietary laws are automatically, quote-unquote, sinners. So in the context of keeping the Jewish dietary laws, Peter and Paul were not sinners, but the Gentiles were. Paul's sort of speaking of the past. This is going to be important when we get to verse 17. But first, in verse 16, begins with the phrase, yet we know. We aren't sinners like Gentiles with regards to dietary laws, yet, but, we know that a person is not justified by the law, the dietary law, or any other law. We, and he's speaking, I I believe, of himself and, and Peter both, we share the same theology of justification. He's just reiterating what Peter knows to be true. We are both justified by faith in Christ and not by works. They share the same gospel, the only true gospel. Peter's just out of step. Paul is saying, Peter, you and I agree justification does not come when you work for God, but when you trust in Christ. So get on the right beat, brother. Stop acting as though Gentiles have to to work for God in order to get right with him. Do not force the Gentiles to live like Jews by keeping the dietary regulations. Don't put them, don't go yourself back into legalism, back into slavery to the law. Stay free. Verse 17. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Interesting little verse here. Apparently the Judaizers were saying that Paul's gospel of justification by faith in Christ is in in the finished work of of Christ on the cross alone turns Christ into a servant of sin. Their rationale, it seems, was that Paul's gospel does not include law-keeping. Therefore, it causes people to sin by not keeping the law. And therefore, since Christ is the sinner of that, That makes Christ a servant of sin. Paul responds in two ways. First, he admits, we too were found to be sinners. We too were found to be sinners. We, himself, Peter, and all who eat with Gentiles, all who stop following the dietary laws are sinners. Now, let's remember back to what we talked about in verse 15. He's talking about the sinners in that limited sense we talked about in verse 15. Paul means that, yes, we're found to be sinners in the eyes of the Judaizers, in the eyes of the party of the circumcision, because we don't keep the Jewish dietary laws. So his first response is, yes, we, by the definition of these guys, are sinners. But his second response is to deny that that turns Christ into a servant of sin. Is Christ then a servant of sin? No way, certainly not. Paul's gospel of faith in Christ alone does not make Christ a servant of sin. Why? Because it's not a sin to be a sinner in the eyes of the Judaizers. It's not sin to free yourself from the law in order to show love towards your Gentile Christian brothers and sisters. It's not sin to stop depending on the works of the law for your salvation Therefore, not keeping the law does not turn Christ into a servant of sin because we're not actually sinning in the eyes of God, only in the eyes of these men. 
But what would be truly sinful in the eyes of God? Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. The Judaizers wanted Paul to include the law in with his gospel. Some, as we talked about, an, a hybrid gospel. Christ and the law sort of mixed together. But what had Paul just torn down? What had he been tearing down? What did he always tear down? He had torn down the law as a means of salvation. The law is not how we're saved. The law was never how we would be saved. He tore down the legalistic misuse of the law. If Paul gives in to the Judaizers and allows the law to be part of the gospel, then he says, I would be a true transgressor. I'm going to be a real sinner. I'm going to be a sinner in the eyes of God. The real transgression against God is to believe and act as if we can earn our salvation by keeping the law, by doing good works, instead of trusting in Christ. That's the real transgression. That devalues, as we'll see as he ends the chapter, as a preview, that devalues, that nullifies the grace of God. Paul would be a hypocrite. And the worst kind of hypocrite, if he rebuilt the law, the the wall of the law, and put it as part of the gospel, Paul would never, no, never abandon grace for the law. Because, verse 19, he says, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul understood that he was condemned by the law, that we're all condemned by the law, that the law brings no hope. The law is only there to show us our sin. He knew that no one can fully meet the demands of the law outside of Christ, of course. So his and our only hope is to die to the law. And when you die to the law, when you're no longer striving to gain your justification by obeying the law, by doing good works, by something that comes from within you, then you can freely live to God. You can give it over to Him. The implications of this are are amazing, if not paradoxical. Our nature wants to obey the law. It wants to do good works that we might find favor with God. But Paul says, as long as you're trying to earn your way to God by works of the law, you cannot live to God. You cannot be in relationship with God. To live to God, you must go against your nature and die to the law. Stop trying to earn God's favor. The closer you try to get to God by works, oh, I'm doing good now, I've done the some really good works, and I haven't sinned in at least five seconds, five minutes. I must be getting close to God. The the more you do that, the farther you get away from God. The farther you get away from the gospel. The farther you get away from the cross of Jesus Christ. The old self that wants to keep the law in order to earn salvation. And for whatever, that's part of who we are. That's our pride. That's our sin nature, our old man. It must die, Paul says. Stop following the beat of legalism, that drum beat that's trying to get you back under the law. And start following the beat of the true gospel of grace and live to God. Now sort of the, I don't know what you call it, the climax, the, the piece de resistance. Verse 20, Paul spells out for us 
the experience of death to the law and life to God. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. Death. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, because I'm still stuck here, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So i got this flesh hanging on. But I've been crucified with Christ. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? It means the death of me. The death of I. It means the, the death of me as a sinner in, si- in the sight of God. It means the death of me as a person seeking to earn my salvation by my own efforts. It means the death of a person under the condemnation of the law. Under judgment and wrath. It means the death of the old self, the old man, the old nature. When Christ died, I died in all these ways, given that I'm trusting him. So if I'm dead, how can I live? How can I be standing here? How can we be here together? Praise the Lord, Paul says, Christ lives in me. He rose from the dead and and took over. He took over my life. This is true conversion. This is the gospel. The Christian is not a person who believes in his head the teachings of the Bible. Satan and his demons believe and they tremble. A Christian is a person who's died with Christ. The old, prideful, self-reliant, self-confident, self-seeking, self-exalting, selfish person is dead. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This, Paul says in Colossians, is is a great mystery. So I'm not going to try to explain it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us and how that all works and how Christ in us causes God's wrath to be assuaged and causes us to be able to live a new life. It's a mystery. And there's more. He goes on, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Back to Romans, no need to fear. He loved us. He gave himself for us. Death is not an end. Death brings new life. We're born again. There's a new I. I do still live. But look at who it is. It's a different I than before. It's no longer a prideful, self-reliant, self-confident, self-seeking, selfish person. The new I looks away from self and to Christ. The new eye has to put its faith in the Son of God. I'm no longer depending on what can I do to earn God's favor. What did Christ do that earned all of God's favor? The Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me on the cross. So now new life is possible. A life that no longer must follow the beat of the world. Don't have to follow it anymore. The beat of fear The beat of hypocrisy, of legalism, of lust, of hate, of jealousy, and the list goes on. The new life in step with the truth of the gospel. The new eye of faith can now follow the beat of the gospel. And the beat of the gospel offers so much of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, faithfulness and self-control, just to name a few. That's what you get when you get the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the beat of the gospel. We can follow these things. These things are possible for us now. This is the new life that is offered for those who believe the gospel. 
Those who die to self and live to Christ. Those who receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen? What a, what a, what a great thing we've been given. Paul then concludes his defense of his apostleship and his gospel with these final words. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul was saying to Peter and others, by refusing to eat with your Gentile brothers and sisters, you stand with the Judaizers against Christ. You're out of step. You nullify the grace of God by acting as if righteousness comes through the law. And if that were true, then Christ's death was unnecessary. If there was any way, Christ said, remember, if there's any way, Lord, let this cup pass before me, but not my will, but yours be done. The cup of the cross didn't pass from Christ's lips because there was no other way. If there was a way, if righteousness could be attained through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, Paul says. Paul concludes with two pillars of the gospel. The grace of God and the death of Christ. The good news, the gospel, is that because of the grace of God, because that's his nature, again, a mystery, why is God gracious? Because he is. Because of the grace of God, he sent his son to die on the cross. Because of God's grace, Christ died. If you try to add anything to the cross of Christ, you nullify God's grace. Paul would not let let that happen. So he had to confront Peter. Peter was out of step. He had to be put back in line with the gospel. The question for us this morning is, will we let it happen in our lives? Will we nullify the grace of God? We nullify, I believe, the grace of God when we, like Peter, are out of step with the gospel. When we're in step with the world, when we're hearing the beat of the world, when the world is pressing down upon us and we're just following along, when we listen and follow the beats of fear, of hypocrisy, of legalism, and so many others, when we're guided by the old self, the flesh that still hangs around, even though I've been crucified in Christ, when we try to earn our salvation, when we try to do good works, To please God, we nullify God's grace. But but when we're in step with the gospel, when we live based on its truth, the truth that we're justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that we've been crucified with Christ, that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us, that he loves us and gave himself for us, that God is not against us, that God is for us, when we live based on the truth of the gospel, we don't nullify the grace of God. Instead, we bring glory to him for his amazing grace. In a moment, Chad's going to lead us, and we're going to sing amazing. It was amazing, actually. I, I was cl- concluding here, and I go, okay, so we're talking about grace. That's, that's pretty amazing. And then I looked at what Chad had planned to sing, and it was amazing grace. That's amazing. As Chad comes, as he... As he comes, I would ask that you examine your hearts as we sing amazing grace, the grace of God. I would ask that you draw near to the Lord and ask him to show you where you're out of step with the gospel. 
The gospel has its beat, and we know what it is. The Word of God tells us. Where are you out of step? Ask Him where you're giving in to fear, where you're giving in to hypocrisy, where you're giving in to legalism, where you're giving in to other things, other things that nullify His grace. And ask Him to help you again. Get into step with the gospel of grace. That's what I'm going to pray for us this morning as, as Chad and the worship team come. Father God, I thank you so much for Christ. For the grace. For your grace that, that led to giving your son. That we could have hope. That we could have freedom, Father. Freedom from being under the law. Freedom from so much, Father. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would not nullify the grace of God. I pray that we would be in step with the gospel. Lord, that we would spend time in your word, that we would spend time with one another, that we would spend time in our small groups just talking about how can we as a people continue to line up, to be in step with the truth of the gospel, the truth that there's freedom, the truth that you love us, the truth that you gave yourself for us, the truth that you're for us. Father, help us to to take hold of those truths and walk in those truths. In Christ's name, amen.